0: Father, we uh, come before you again, and we just want to thank you for this time to remember you, and uh, Lord, so often we look at the shadow of things when you are the substance, and so Lord, I pray that as we come to your word and as you show us all the shadows and the pictures and the types, Lord, I pray that the reality of your son would come into view, Lord, we are we are at your mercy, and your mercy is great. And so, Lord, we, we just ask for you to humble our hearts, God, and open us up, Lord, to be able to hear from your word, and that our lives would be changed, our perspectives would be changed, uh, that we would bow the knee now, Lord, and that our hearts would just rejoice in your sovereign lordship over our lives. And God, you've got everything in control and it's all in your hands. Thankful that we can just rest in your arms. Thank you for sending your son and for bringing us into your family through his sacrifice and his resurrection. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Oh yeah, kids, you're dismissed. Making sure, if you, oh, and the you're too old. I've got to sit back. i was just kidding. People trying to get out of here. If you would, please open up with me to Daniel chapter 5. We'll be making our way through the entirety of Daniel chapter 5 this morning in our remaining time. In chapter 4... Uh, we saw the humbling of the mighty king of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar. If you've been following along, King Nebuchadnezzar, uh, king of kings, lord of lords of the earth at the time, so called by God, uh, was was humbled. And really, chapter 4 last week um, is really a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote to the entirety of his kingdom. Everybody had conquered all the lands all far away. He wrote a letter how God had given him a dream and how Daniel interpreted it and then the response of Nebuchadnezzar to this, his conclusion. And basically, because of that dream, the dream just basically told him that because of his pride, he would be humbled for seven years. He was given a mind of an animal, and he he went from basically the palace to the the prairie, (laughs) wandering around there like an animal for seven years. After losing everything, God then restores him to, to his position uh, when he looked up to heaven, regained his understanding, and realized that God is truly sovereign, that he rules, that heaven rules. And he says there in chapter 4, uh, in verse 34, he says, At the end of the day, as I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand or say to him, What, you have, what have you done? Absolute, total sovereignty. Sovereignty is what the highest king of this land came to realize as God raised him to the highest, put him to the lowest, and put him back to the highest, just like that. And he says in verse 36, at at the same time my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. And he's not saying all that, he's saying that his kingdom was vast and amazing and awesome and he had much splendor and every single bit of it was restored to him. And not only that, but more was added to him, he says. He says, this was an act of God. There's no way you lose all that and get any of that back. And he says there in verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right. Right. And his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to what? He's able to humble, and that's what God did to him. Fast forward to chapter 5 this morning, where it says King uh, Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of, a, in front of the thousand. Now, real quickly, we're, it's not Nebuchadnezzar anymore, it's a guy named Belshazzar. We have to stop here because this introduces us to a new king. Uh, This is 23 years after the the death of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar, I think, reigned like 40-something years. He died, and then a series of kings uh, went after him until you get to to Belshazzar. But basically, uh, chapter 1 was 70 years prior to chapter 5. Daniel was just a teenager then. Now... In chapter 5, Daniel's 80 years old. So this is jumping way ahead here. In Daniel chapters 1 through 4, King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling, king of Babylon for 43 years, and then he died in 562 B.C., for you history buffs. And archaeology and and historians tell us that King Nebuchadnezzar was succeeded by several rulers. Um, The first was his son, Amal Marduk. Um, if you, want, if you have, guys are looking for baby names, that one's available. And most of these rulers were named after their gods. Uh, Marduk was basically the chief Babylonian god. He was the god of all gods there. And so to be named after him was quite an honor if you're Babylonian. Amal Marduk was called uh, by the name of Evil uh, Evil Merodach in 2 Kings 25 to 27. So the Jews kind of had a different name for him. Um, but he reigned for two years, basically. So the son of, 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 of Nebuchadnezzar reigned for two years and then was assassinated by his own brother-in-law who took the throne from him. And his name was Nara Gleiser. And he's mentioned in Jer- Jeremiah 39 as Neg- uh, Negral Sh- Sherazir. There's going to be a quiz after, when we're done. He was, uh, at the time, an official of Nebuchadnezzar and obviously married into the family be- And uh, because he didn't have... Uh, well, I guess my thing just started to... Reboot here. There we go. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, he obviously married into the family because he wasn't able to take the throne. He wasn't of, of lineage. And so he ruled for four years and was succeeded by his, uh, by his son. And his son was uh, Lashib Lish- Marduk, again. And he was just a little kid. Um, and, and basically, conspirators beat him to death. This little kid to death, and uh, those conspirators then took another guy and put him on the throne, and his name was Nabonidus as their king. And so there's this success, succession of assassinations and 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 just brutal things that happen uh, with kings. And Nabonidus ruled for 17 years. Now Nabonidus wasn't of, of royal thro- of the royal throne, and basically because he was kind of afraid of get assassinated, he moved his White House, so to speak, like way out in the desert, way south, uh, way out of town, way out of Babylon. But because uh, he still wanted to rule Babylon, he set up his son, Belshazzar, in his stead in Babylon. So there were co-kings that were happening during this time. It's interesting Uh, until recent history, basically, they think that that the Bible is just a bunch of junk because there was no king named Belshazzar in history. Well, it just happens that they came across across a cylinder called the Cylinder of Nabonidus. And in the Cylinder of Nabonidus, he is praying for his son, Belshazzar. And everybody goes, okay, well, maybe it's right. So once again, the scriptures are accurate. But by the time chapter 5 comes around, this is my point, the Medo-Persian Empire... With, with Cyrus, has, has been eating up all the land around. They've been conquering everything. And uh, the Babylonian army with Nabonidus fought them in the desert, some 50 miles outside of Babylon, and they were conquered. C- uh, Cyrus took out the Babylonian army, and he took Nabonidus captive, and he would never be seen of again. And so at this point in chapter 5, The Medo-Persian army has now surrounded Babylon. Historians say they've been under siege by probably anywhere from two to four to four months by now. They argue about stuff like this. But basically, two to four months, they're under siege. The city of Babylon is under siege when we get to chapter five. That's what's going on. And so that sets the scene. Belshazzar is on the throne in Babylon, Cyrus is conquered the babylonian army taking nabonidus the number one king captive and they're laying siege to babylon and so what does belshazzar do verse 1 tells us of chapter 5 king belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of a thousand now he throws this massive party now you got to figure everybody's kind of bummed out so this is probably a try to get a morale boost going on uh you know with all of his leader he takes all the lords all the leaders and goes come on let's you know, everything's going to be great. Let's, let's just let's party it up. You might think that that's crazy, but there's actually, I think, a false sense of security in the defenses of Babylon. And just, you've got to bear with me through some of this history stuff for a few minutes. We have to remember that, according to the historical accounts, the, that Babylon was an awesome city. It was an absolute spectacular city. The architecture of Babylon was amazing. I spoke briefly of it last week. I'm just going to fill in some details. But uh, Herodotus, the the Greek historian, uh, described the city of Babylon in quite a bit of detail. The city was 14 miles square. So from here to Walla Walla Airport is 14 miles, but not as a crow flies, kind of going like that. So you can imagine 14 miles by 14 miles by 14 miles by 14 miles. That's a big city with walls around it. And the walls around Babylon were 350 feet high and 85 feet thick. You could have four chariots going around, you know, they had a highway, a super highway going around the top. They had pillars going around the tops of them. There were a hundred bronze gates built into the walls all the way around. I mean, so, We're not thinking like, you know, hey, walls with 30 feet high. I mean, just giant walls, impenetrable. And to add to that, the the Euphrates River flowed right through the middle of the city. They had the the wall go down low, and the river came underneath. And so it divided the city in half. And so they didn't have any water problems. In the siege, you have a problem. They cut off your water supply, and they cut off your food. You've got 14 miles square. You can graze your animals in there. You can have your, you can grow crops. You can have food. You can have endless water supply come in. And so there's a fair bit of confidence in your infrastructure to be able to outlast what's going on on the outside. Not to mention it was divided in half, and there was the temple of Zeus that had some kind of a, amazing spires that went up so high that they had to have benches cuz people got tired from going up the original, you know, stairmaster there. On the other side, you had the palace. And so this was just a, a majestic place. It was huge. Huge. And this really isn't begin to s- describe everything in there. It's the that's there, the, the, the towers were amazing, and you had, obviously, the, the hanging gardens and all this type of stuff. It was just phenomenal. But needless to say, that there was confidence in their defenses. There was confidence in their de- defenses, their physical defenses. There was that sense of security. And so with that, he goes ahead and goes, hey, let's have a drunken orgy, and that's what this was calling on their gods, getting drunk, summoning them in the way they do with their worship for their help. And so the king throws a massive party for all the dignitaries. Verse 2, and Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, he commanded that the vessels of gold and silver uh, that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Now, if you notice in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar is called his father. And that it might be his grandfather, depending on, depending on some things which we'll get into. But the word father can even imply grandfather or father or someone related to you. Um, either way, Belshazzar was related to Nebuchadnezzar. And, and the point of verse 2 is that Nebuchadnezzar, when he conquered Judah, he took all of the sacred things, the things that were consecrated. Remember the temple of of Jerusalem. Do you remember how, like, it was, it was staggered, so the Gentiles had to stay on the outside, and then there was the court of the women, and then you got closer, than the men could be there, and then you got, then the men couldn't even go into the priestly part. Only the priests could get there, but only if they'd done all this stuff. And then there was the Holy of Holies within the center of the temple, which was where all of these precious, well, the holy place, where all these precious places, all these things that they used for, um, uh, for these sacrifices. You had the, the laven and all the cups and all these types of things were all on the inside of the temple and only certain people could get in there. And then there was the holy place where only a high priest could go in once a year, not, but not without blood. And so when Nebuchadnezzar came in and he conquered this place, he busted into the most holy places and he took what was most sacred and was most set apart for the worship of God. And he grabbed those things and took them out, brought them back home and threw them in the temple of his God as a sign of, we got you. And what happens here is Belshazzar's partying and he wants to worship all his gods. So he goes and grabs those and starts to fill the wine with them. And they're having this kind of party that's out of control. And verse 3 says that then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God of Jerusalem, and the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And so here they were praising their gods from the from the most valuable to the least valuable, the praising all of their gods. And they're doing it drinking out of these vessels that were consecrated to God. And the thing about this is that he's not doing this in in, in ignorance. He is doing this in defiance. Verse 5, immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote in the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. And then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him and his limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. So as soon as the sacred vessels were used, a hand, supernaturally looking like a human's, appears on the wall and starts writing in language. It's interesting, as uh, archaeologists have gone and they've, they've dug up all these places, they found this giant banquet hall, and they, they note that the sides are made of plaster. Uh, the insides are made of plaster, just, just as described here. And it was most likely in that very large room that this is where that happened. And when the king saw it, it says he just lost it. His color changed. Have you ever been so afraid that you actually start to shake, your, your knees start to shake? How many of you are scared of heights? Yes. Like you get high and all of a sudden you just start to lose all your bearing. I know all the rest of you are going, oh, come on. No. It's true. It's like you just start to lose Something within you gives out, your fortitude falls apart. The king lost his color, he lost his ability, his joints started to get loose, and he was just in total panic and fear. And he fell on his face, he was overcome as this supernatural enemy was inside. It's interesting, so much confidence in the walls to keep the enemy out when those very walls the enemy that he needed to be concerned with were being written on. But all the confidence in the world, in the walls, yet the enemy he faced was already inside. Verse 7, the king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. What do you do when you're in a bad situation? Who do you rely on? Who do you call to? Well, this king obviously didn't pay any attention to what's been happening for the first four chapters. He called the enchanters, he called the the Chaldeans, and he called the astrologers. <clears throat> he goes to the brain trust basically of the Babylonians, the wise men of the day. And so we know what's gonna happen here. They never have any answers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows it to me, it's me, its interpretation, shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. This is saying you will be third in command. Nebuchadnezzar is number one, I'm number two. You'll be third in command if you can do this. So, a lot of incentive there. Verse eight. And then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writings or make known to the king the interpretations. You know, people are looking for answers. People are looking for answers in this world right now, and they keep going to the enchanters. They keep going into the sorcerers and the Chaldeans and the wise men of the day. It's the same result. They're not going to be able to give you what you need to know. When it comes to things that God is communicating, they don't have a clue. The same results for chapters 1 and 4. When it comes to the one true God's words, all the wise guys in Babylon can't get it. But verse 9, it says, Then the king was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. No answers, no direction, no where to go. I don't have the answers. He's perplexed. He went back. See, his confidence went into these wise guys. He gained his color again, but then they didn't have the, the, the answers. They lost it. How many of you guys have been going up and down and up and down and up and down with everything that's going on? Depending on who you're listening to. Yes. He lost his color again. Then verse 10. The queen because of the words the king and his lords of, of his lords came into the banquet hall. Now this was not his 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 wife. This was probably this was his mother. Cuz she wasn't in the banquet hall. She wouldn't have been messing around with all that stuff. This was most likely Nebuchadnezzar's either daughter or his, his widow. And Nabonidus married her and had a child with her, or she already had had a child, probably, that's, that's probably the way it goes, is, is that she already had a child, which would have been related to Nebuchadnezzar. And so this is the queen mother. And she apparently hears what's going on in the predicament, uh, everything that's going on, she comes into the hall, and the queen declares, "O king, live forever! Let not your thoughts alarm you, or your color change." There, there, son. Verse eleven: There is a man in your kingdom who is the, who is the, uh, In whom is the spirit of the holy gods? In the day of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father, the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Now, Nebuchadnezzar died 20 years prior to this. A lot has happened. A lot of administrations come and go. Daniel had a position of prominence, if you remember. That went away. He's, who knows what he's doing. He was made chief of the the wise guys, but now who knows where he is with so many administration changes. But the queen was around back then. She remembers what happened. She remembers the predicaments that Nebuchadnezzar was in, the dreams and the things that had happened, and how God intervened through this man named Daniel. And she's looking at this situation that is happening where no one has any answers, and it clicks in her head. There's a man of God who knows what to do because the spirit of the gods is in him. A a Babylonian way of saying Man, God's spirit is in this guy. And so she makes it a point to remind Belshazzar, her son, that King Nebuchadnezzar, your father or your predecessor, remember how awesome and, and amazing King Nebuchadnezzar was? That guy trusted in this guy. And so what are you going to do about it? You should probably trust in him too, right? Right? If he trusted in him, then you should too. Now, apparently, Daniel, obviously, had lost his position. Who knows where he was? He had to be found. So many people being assassinated on that. He was probably just pushed aside. We don't know, but it really didn't make a difference to Daniel. Daniel, Daniel wasn't a man who cared about, cared about all his position. And we're going to find that in, in here. But the queen mother, she makes a point that this man, Daniel, he had the spirit of the holy gods, and that light and understanding and wisdom when we're in him. How many people do you know have light and understanding and wisdom that just steps out above everything that's going on, that you go to and you go, wow, this person has insight into life, into circumstances and problems. They have amazing wisdom. Not a worldly wisdom, but a godly wisdom. God has blessed them with discernment and understanding for the day. And that's what she's talking about uh, light and wisdom and understanding. That's a supernatural insight. That is a knowledge and an ability to apply that knowledge were found in Daniel. We keep going back to the same old wells. We keep going back to the same old astrologers. We keep going back to the same old things for answers, and we keep getting the same stuff. The people of God need to go to the Word of God. We need to go to godly people for counsel and wisdom. You know, and this is part of the problem, I think, that we have is, you know, when in Hebrews, when, when Paul was, our, I'm sorry, the, the writer of Hebrews, uh, was, was writing them. He's saying, you know, so you guys should be teachers by now. You know, I mean, I'm looking at myself, too, in all this. He's just saying, you know, you guys should be teachers now, right now. I want to go on and teach you all this stuff, but there should be, like, you guys should have an understanding of this fundamental stuff, right? There should be a wisdom, a collective wisdom, and an understanding among the people of God because we're around God and His Word. You see, you are who you are around. You reflect who you're around. And, and the idea is if we're His kids, then we're going to, that wisdom is going to be in us. His Spirit's going to be in us. It just doesn't, you know, it gets developed you know, uh, it's, it's like, like Daniel, we, we, we're, you know, he was blessed when he was young, but God developed that through circumstances. He, he developed it through difficulties. He developed it through opportunities to step out in faith. He, had to, he feared for his life at times. He had to gather the other guys together and pray for God's wisdom. God had to jump in and intervene, and that is how he grew. I know you guys facing some things going on. This is an opportunity to grow. It's an opportunity to dig in, to to seek your God, to get around the people of God and saying, I don't have this wisdom, let's pray, let's seek him, let's get in the word together and and let God speak to you and let him use you and, and, and raise you up in this generation to be used. Not that you would have position and power and authority and all that stuff, Daniel doesn't care about that. But so that people would see him, his name would be honored and lifted up among his people, amen? And he uses humble people, people who are willing to just do whatever. But she remembered he stuck out, like Joseph before. Those guys had forgot about Joseph, he was in jail. But when the hard times came, they remembered, oh yeah, there's a guy named Joseph, and he has the ability to do what you want, King. Let's go get him. Same with Daniel here. Daniel's your guy. Go get him. You have a riddle. You have a problem. Verse 12, Because an excellent spirit of knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and and he will show the interpretation. Go get him. Verse 13, let's get through a big chunk here. Uh, Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and then the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king, my father, brought from Judah. I have heard that you have the spirit of the gods, uh, it's in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Verse 15. and you've got to love Daniel's response. How would you respond in that situation? Would you get your lawyer? Start working your deal and your angles and <laughs> let's see if we can get a jet in this. Daniel answers and says said to the king, "Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another." This is a man who can't be bought. King, keep your stuff. I love that Daniel couldn't be bought. He wasn't after power or position or recognition. I know these were rewards, but he just didn't care about those things. They that wasn't his life. He wasn't that wasn't the aspiration of his life to get a you know, some letters behind his name or wear a certain coat or wear a chain that signified how important he was. He already had those accolades. That was already who God had made him. You know what I mean? Keep your gifts and give your words to someone else. You know, so many of us have had our lives, the fruitfulness of our lives choked out after the pursuit of those things. The cares of the world, not Daniel. Keep your stuff. Give the rewards to someone else. Verse 17, nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. You see, he was faithful to the call that God had given him. He was faithful. Keep your stuff, but I'm still going to do what God's called me to do. And that's what God had gifted him to do. Verse 18, O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him in all peoples, nations, all languages, they trembled and feared before him. And whom he would, he killed. And whomever he would, he kept alive. And whom he would, he raised up. And whom he would, he humbled. Nebuchadnezzar had absolute power and authority as a king on earth. He was a total dictator. Whoever he wanted to kill, he killed. Whoever he wanted to keep alive, he kept alive. Whoever he wanted to give uh, a position to, he did. And whoever he didn't, whoever to bring down out of position, he did. That's who he was. He was the king of kings. There was no earthly king higher. Verse 20. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt what? Proudly. He was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. And he was driven from among the children of mankind. And his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys. And he was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. In verse 20, And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart though you what though you knew all this this was not ignorance like nebuchadnezzar this is defiance but you have lifted up yourself against the lord of heaven knowing all this willfully you have lifted up yourself against the lord of heaven And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you have praised the gods of silver and of gold and of bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hands is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. Daniel. A man of God who can't be bought or sold speaking the word of God to this king how we need men and women who are faithful to God and who aren't bought out that's a side thing that was done in this man as a teenager and it lived out through his whole, whole life a man of integrity beautiful thing But the point that is made here is that Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful ruler on earth, was given his position by God and God humbled him in his ignorance. He didn't really grasp the sovereignty of God. God had to appear to him three different times and he finally got it in chapter 4, right? He finally got it. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was ignorant of the Most High God, and God was gracious to him time and time. I wouldn't be gracious to him. I mean, the guy was crazy, right? I mean, y'all, that's why we're not God. God does what he wants, and his ways are not our ways. Who he chooses to lift up and exalt are not the people we would. But we saw that. How God restored Nebuchadnezzar at the end of chapter 4 because he could. And he wrote to everyone, Nebuchadnezzar did, he wrote to them, and told them and documented everyone that he is the most high God. He was humbled before him. He knew his place and he let everybody know. Amen? He was ignorant. He was prideful. God humbled him and he acknowledged God as who he was. And Daniel tells Belshazzar in verse 22, you knew all this stuff. And yet, you didn't humble yourself. You knew what happened. You knew what your forefather knew. You knew all of it, and you did not humble yourselves. You read all the stuff. You've been told it over and over and over. You know it. And the point is that he deliberately defied the Most High God by grabbing those vessels and putting it in his face. This wasn't ignorance. This was outright defiance. You chose to do this. You chose to dishonor the one true God who actually holds your very breath in your hands. Can you believe that? The one who sets up kings, the one you know who sets up kings, who takes down kings, the one who is in total authority, the one who holds your very life in his hands. You defied him in that moment on purpose. Instead of actually seeking the one who had a, the power to deal with your situation. There's a difference between ignorance and defiance. There's a lot of people who are ignorant of God. and God is merciful. And we're to be light and to, and to shine the light of Christ and all those things. Uh, we're to be salt and life, light in the earth. But then there are those who are not ignorant. They're defiant. They're defiant of God. They know God. They know the gospel. They've heard it. They know it. And yet they willfully do what they do to his face. Hebrews 10, 24 through 30 speaks of this. Speaks of those who know the gospel, who've heard the gospel. Verses 19, actually. uh, Hebrews 10, 19 says, Therefore, brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he has opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the household of God, he's saying, since we all know this stuff, since we know what Christ has done for us, since we know he's our high priest, since we know that the flesh was his, his veil, we know that all those shadows and types, we know he's the substance, we, we know him. Verse 22, let us draw near with a what? True heart and full assurance of faith. We're not ignorant. We know these things. And so therefore, there's a reaction to the truth. There's a life that responds to the truth. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us do what? Hold fast to the confession of, of our hope without wavering, not going to the left or right. We're continuing to move towards Christ, so to speak. We're following him. We're holding fast, not wavering. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stir up one another in love and good works, not neglecting to meet with one another. Not neglecting to meet together, as it is in the habit of some. Who are the some? The ones who know and yet defy. That's his point. And my point isn't, you know, you better be here. The point is a life lived in the knowledge of God, right? Some people don't know any of this. They don't know Christ. They're ignorant of him, and God is merciful, and he leads them to those things. But there's those who know Christ and and yet they they do that, and they're defiant to him. We're in willfully sinning against him, and boy, talks about trampling the Son of God under underfoot. And he goes on. Just read the rest of that. It's kind of man. It should shake you to your core. But he says, but instead of not meeting together as in the habit of some but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching since we know god since we're changed and that we now in him we now gather together with the purpose of edifying one another not only on sundays but that's our life we love one another right why for if we go on sinning deliberately after we receive the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries. There's a lot there, and I'm not going to get into all the theology of this. Can you lose your salvation or not? No, you can't. I don't think these people are saved, but that's the proof that you are, is that you persevere in these things. But l- if you look at this, he's talking to Jews, and he's saying, you have the knowledge of this. You're accountable for it. You're not ignorant of the gospel. You're not ignorant of these things. Live your life for Christ. Because if you don't, there's a fearful expectation of judgment to come. And that's the balance we have as Christians. When we aren't walking after Him, our hearts give way. But when we're walking after Him, there's this assurance of salvation. Amen? Come to the Lord. You see. That's the situation there, but if if you are the one that knows the truth like Belshazzar, right, and yet there's no change, there's not hope for you, there's a fearful expectation of judgment, and that's what happened to him. He goes on, the point being that Belshazzar knew the truth but would not humble himself, he would not humble himself, right? Some of you listening right now, you know the truth, but you will not humble yourself. You've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and you have not humbled yourself. Today is the day of salvation. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. But Nebuchadnezzar was ignorant. He was humbled, and then came to the truth. Belshazzar knew the truth and defied God. And Daniel says to Belshazzar, You have not honored God, who holds every breath and your ways. Verse 24 in closing, then from his presence, the hand was sent, and his writing was, ins- writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. meeny Meenie, Tekel, uh, Parson. Great. Uh, verse 26. And this is the interpretation of the matter. meaning God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balance and found wanting. Perez, uh, your, king, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The writing is on the wall. You ever heard of that thing, that phrase? This is where it's from. It means it's over. And that's exactly what was communicated through those Aramaic words there. God has numbered your days, and your kingdom's come to an end. You've been, you've been weighed in the balance and have been found wanting. Verse 29, then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed in purple, a chain of gold, put around his neck, and proclaimed uh, it was made about him, you know, the proclamation was made about him that he should be um, the third ruler in the kingdom for about 10 hours. Yay. <laughs> Promoted. It's like, you, you know, the feds are coming in and <laughs> yeah, in 10 minutes and like, hey, you know, we're going to make you CEO. It's like, I don't want to be a CEO. <laughs> so Belshazzar gave Daniel all these rewards regardless of what Daniel wanted and, and just, and Belshazzar. What Daniel just said, Belshazzar had been weighed in the balance and had been found wanting. In other words, this means what God required of him was not there. It wasn't there. And that the judgment for that as a king, as a ruler, because he didn't lack humility before God, meant that his kingdom was being stripped away from him. And it would be given to the Medes and the Persians. But the king doesn't know and what history tells us is that at that very moment, Cyrus and his army were diverting the waters of the Euphrates into into a marsh and the water level was being lowered. And that night, verse 30 happened, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being about 62 years old. They came in under the thing and they attacked the city and they took it over. That night, the city was so big, it says that some of them didn't realize they were conquered for three days. That's a whole story in itself. Proverbs 16, 8, you all know it. Many of you know it. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. And boy, is America prideful. Boy, do we have a haughty spirit. In one night, the mighty city of Babylon fell. The head of gold had been taken over by the kingdom of silver, just as God had said. One night. You know, as we look at Babylon's fall, we have many similarities in the warning signs of the United States. The main one being that we no longer even remotely fear God. A generation knows better. And it, it has gone from... You know, ignorance to knowledge, to defiance. We have a generation of people who know better, who've heard the gospel, have known these things, and we've been totally defiant towards God. But there's also another generation coming up that's totally ignorant, praise God, and we have an opportunity to witness to this generation about the mightiness and the awesomeness and the love and the grace and the forgiveness of God in the midst of our sea of sins how the blood of Jesus Christ is able to wipe them all away. But, you know, we've become a people who who openly defy God. And the leaders that we put in place, we all argue about them, but they're a reflection of us in this society. They're a reflection of our spirit. We go, oh, no, we're not like, it's like, yeah, we're actually worse. the reflection of our hubris, you know. We don't even flinch at evil anymore. We don't even cringe with what comes out of our mouth or the music we listen to or what we say. I mean, we're just desensitized. I think in so many ways, it's reflected in all aspects of our society. And we too, we, we have this trust in our military. <clears throat> I love our military family. You know, if you serve in the military, God bless you, love you. But the walls of Babylon can't withhold the judgment of God. There's no force strong enough. And notice, the enemy is already inside. The destruction comes from within. The degradation of society. This is what happened to Rome. You know, the real enemy that our nation needs to contend with is that we're at war with God. You know, we claim God bless America. Well, how about us start blessing God? You know? We're at at war. Our nation's at war with God. How do we know that? Because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He is at war with those who are proud, but it gives grace to the humble. I'm just talking about our nation, our society. I'm not talking about Christians, okay? We've rejected the Lordship of Jesus Christ in, in this nation. And although there's a generation coming up that's never heard the gospel, there is a generation that has been defiant. And we've been a part of it. And church, the writing very, very very well may be on the wall for us in so many ways. But God is also merciful. You know, that's that's all we have to go on, is just his incredible mercy. I'm so thankful that although he is absolutely holy, and these don't contradict one another, he is absolutely merciful. There couldn't be a more merciful being in existence. God is so merciful. You are case in point. I'm a case in point. God has been so merciful that he would send his only son, Jesus, to die for the most wicked and for the least wicked, that, that, the, that the sins of, of defiance and ignorance and all of that would be paid for by the pure, innocent Sacrifice of his son. When he was faced with that punishment on behalf of those who would believe, he was sitting there in the garden, sweating great drops of blood, just saying, Lord, if there's another way, let it pass from me. But there wasn't. Because God's justice. And his love had to be met in his son. Sin must be punished, and God must forgive. (laughs) That's who he is, and it was in Christ. And so the innocent for the guilty, God poured out his wrath on his son. The mercy of God and Jesus Christ. This nation needs Christ more than ever. And his plan for for whatever happens, however it falls apart, whatever goes on, it's for you to be a Daniel in Babylon, not a, not a Babylonian Babylon. It's for you to be the witness of Christ in this generation. To be one when you're called upon to serve the Lord wouldn't be one who's caught up in the riches of this world, but are ready just to serve Jesus and to proclaim his truth, no matter who, who's, who you're speaking to. The truth and love I'm just praying that through this, we, we would become like Daniel in this generation, amen? Because who knows what's going to happen with everything, right? I mean, it's already pretty funky. The Bible says it's going to get pretty bad before the end. So that's the trajectory, folks. I pray for revival, but I'm not planning on it. Sorry. Um, but God can do what he wants. But his plan is sitting right here. It's at home. It's you. You're connected with people. You're around the Babylonians. Shed off the, the sin that so easily ensnares us and let's focus once again on our graciously God, our gracious God in this time. Walk humbly before him. So bring things, 1 Peter four seventeen says, for it is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, if there's a cleansing with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become the ungodly and the sinner? Yikes. The way is narrow. Let's be Daniel's in Babylon, amen? Let's be Nebuchadnezzar's in that we humble ourselves before the Lord or allow him to humble us and let him lift us up, Amen. And may the Lord see, uh, may the world see the Lord in and through us. Babylon fell to the Medes and Persians, but Daniel lived on to do God's work in that next kingdom. Pretty cool picture there. Praying that God would encourage you this week. If your heart's weighed down, don't go to the Babylonians. Go to the Lord. Go to His people, and let Him bring wisdom and comfort to you this week. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for your word. Thank you for this beautiful picture of ignorance and defiance and your hand on it all, Lord. So thankful that we have been given the knowledge of the truth, Lord, that you've come to us in your mercy and have proclaimed your son to us the bright morning star, the radiant light of the world. And that you're calling us to turn from our darkness and to turn towards you in faith. That's all you require. And then you will make us sons and daughters of the King of kings and the Lord of lords as we believe that Jesus died on our sin, uh, for our sins, and rose again to give us eternal life. If anyone hasn't given their heart to the Lord, today is the day. Give your heart to the Lord. Confess your sin to Him. Say, I've walked in darkness. I've been defiant of you or ignorant of you. I come to you, Father, and I believe that you sent your Son, Jesus, to die for me and to give me life, real life, eternal life, life without end, not because of anything I deserve, but because of your mercy and your grace because you are good, and sovereign. I believe. Believe in your heart that Jesus died and rose from the dead, and you will have eternal life and follow him this day forward. Father, we pray for those who've heard that message. We ask that you would bring those to you, Lord, out of of the world that you've called. And we love you, and we thank you for this day and this opportunity, God. We pray that Many would come to know you through this church. And we want to ask that your church worldwide, Lord, would be purified, strengthened, and encouraged, God, for the times that are coming. And may your name be exalted in every one of us. In the name of Jesus, amen.